Hey everybody, Paul here. You're listening to part 12 in our Problem of Evil series. If this is like an early entry point for you into this podcast, I really encourage you maybe to start at the beginning of this series and to actually go through it like you're taking a class. I think that's the best way to do it. If you've missed some episodes along the way, that's okay. You can probably go back and and maybe start with the episodes that you've missed. Maybe you've kind of jumped around. I think the best way to consume this massive project, this undertaking, this going through 2,000 plus years of theological history in the Christian tradition to try to figure out how Christians have have best attempted to address and answer the problem of evil and suffering. And in order to do that, I really, really strongly recommend you go back to the very beginning. You know, you're talking about between part one all the way here to part 12 today. I mean, you're talking about well over, I would say probably 15 hours worth of lectures, <laughs> right? I mean, that's that might be feel pretty hardcore to try to tackle, but I, I think that's the best way to do it. At the very least, I would recommend before you get into today's episode to have listened to at least the past two episodes in our Problem of Evil series. So part 11, part 10, I would say even maybe going back to part nine is going to be most beneficial in order to best appreciate today's episode because we are still in the European Enlightenment and we are specifically dealing with how Christian theologians during that era have um, proposed sometimes new novel attempts at addressing the problem of evil. You're going to see this interplay, this dynamic that we wrestle with even still today this dynamic, especially within the church, if you are still a churchgoer, if you still are practicing Christian in some denomination, you're going to feel this tension as people try to give you explanations about why there's evil and suffering in the world and how that can exist with an all-good and all-powerful God. You're going to kind of feel some of these tensions that really became more pronounced during the Enlightenment, these tensions between how much do we rely on reason versus how much do we rely on perhaps other methods of knowing, like feeling, intuition, revelation, the subjective experiences of faith. So to best appreciate the dynamic and the contributions of who we are going to explore in today's episode, I highly recommend going back to at least the last few episodes in this series, if not starting all the way at the beginning. If you are feeling gutsy and you want to go through this whole really treat it like a class and you go through 15 plus hours, man, I think that's the best way to go. You're going to see all these new connections. One last word before we get into today's episode. Again, if you have maybe not started at the beginning, the point of this entire series is not for me to tell you here is the answer to the problem of evil. That would be so um, that would be so preposterous of me to propose to you, especially in light of these brilliant, brilliant thinkers throughout history to think, hey, here's the deal. I know all these guys have wrestled with it, but I'm smart enough and I figured it out for you. What I want to do in this is to instead 
act as a tour guide. We are going on a guided tour. We're going to kind of, you could also think of it, to use another analogy, you are at the kind of all-you-can-eat buffet of uh, responses to the problem of evil throughout Christian history. And all I want to do is help you understand what's in that buffet, all right? What is, what is this option? What is this option? And maybe what you might find yourself doing is noting, oh, you know what? I think, I think there's something to this person's explanation. And I think there might be something to this one. Can I put that together on the same plate? You might find yourself going, hey, you know, the more I've actually compared these two, maybe there's some things I believed about God's goodness, uh, his omnipotence, his omniscience. I thought about sin and evil and justice and suffering in the world. And as I've compared what I've believed with these people who have gone before me, I might go, ah, I don't, maybe that's not what I want to have on my plate anymore. My goal is that I could just serve as the tour guide. I am uh, taking you on a guided tour. At the end of this series, I do plan on maybe sharing my conclusions, what's on my plate as I've gone through this buffet table of of church history. Um, But, you know, I'm not trying to talk you into anything. Oh, (laughs) some of you are frustrated by that. I've heard some comments like, why don't you just tell us what to think or what you think the right answer is? I'd rather help you guys learn how to think than to tell you what to think. I think there's plenty of that out there. And one of the best ways we learn how to think is by grappling and stepping into the thought processes and thought processes of great minds who have gone before us. All right. So I hope you enjoyed today's episode. We're in part 12. We're still in the Enlightenment era in Europe. But we are now heading into the 19th century, and there's a lot, a lot of important changes in Western thought and challenges and problems that emerge. It's an interesting time period, so I hope you enjoyed today's episode. In our last episode, we explored the theology and philosophy of Immanuel Kant. Immanuel Kant was a very important German thinker who brought about really a revolutionary way of exploring and thinking about reality, and it had important implications on theodicy. As a quick review, which is going to be important as we get into the person we're going to study today, Kant had this transcendental idealism. Kant believed that God's existence and questions of God existed in this realm that we could call the noumenal realm, or maybe some might think of it as the the platonic realm of ideals or the spiritual realm. But along with this noumenal realm, if you picture two concentric circles, the noumenal realm is the concentric circle on the outside. But there's another circle on the inside. That is the phenomenological realm or the phenomenological world. That is the world of matter and our material experiences. And for Kant, there's maybe different ways that we know things in the phenomenological world compared to how we can know things or attempt to know things in the the noumenal realm. Keep that in mind as we go through today's episode. 
As we discussed in episode 68, this was a standalone episode entitled How Theologies Start Revolutions. I noted that certain strains of Enlightenment thought in Europe, especially in Europe, took strong anti-religious attitudes. This wasn't the case everywhere, especially as the Enlightenment received a slightly different expression in what became the United States. Things were different in Europe. Europe had a much longer history of this entrenchment, this, um, this marriage of, of church and state together, and it made people extra suspicious. I think it, it stirred up in people an even greater anti-religious sentiment. And as we looked at in episode 68, how theology start revolutions, the French Revolution was one of the most famous examples of this anti-religious shift. In 1793, French revolutionaries in the first state-sponsored atheistic religion even transformed the Notre Dame Cathedral into what they called a temple of reason. Again, this type of attitude towards traditional religion, it wasn't exclusive to France. It was becoming more and more in vogue throughout Europe. Many people perceived the anti-religious movement to be a sign of what we might call being cultured, uh, you know, a mark of class, a mark of educational distinction. The importance of the ivory tower intelligentsia in society can't be overstated, especially during this era. It's important now, but it's, I think it was even more important. Their power, their influence in culture was substantially greater during this era. While printed media has certainly been around for quite some time, thanks to Johann Gutenberg's printing press, which was uh, invented in Europe in the 15th century, traditional institutions of learning and what we could call this ivory tower class played a much more important role in eventually shaping the guiding stories believed by the masses, a much more important role than they do today. We talked about in the previous episode how the shifts in, in technological improvements that have brought about mass entertainment media and social media have kind of decentralized the theological and philosophical and even psychologically formative processes that transform us and transform culture and society. That obviously hasn't always been the case. It wasn't always the case that, you know, when you're standing in line at the DMV, you would pull out your phone and scroll through your Facebook, your Twitter, or your Instagram account, or wherever, and see news stories or ideas or influencers uh, presenting you with a story about reality that might be new or different or challenging to you. That wasn't always the case. So if we go back, Back into the 18th, and in today's episode, again, we're heading into the 19th century, traditional institutions like universities and those in that educated, what I'm going to call today, maybe the, the ivory tower class, the, the academics, they, they play a much more important role, um, especially as you have much, much more restricted um, access to the dissemination of information in media. 
You had print media, but you didn't have television media. You just certainly didn't have internet and social media. So these traditional institutions of learning are, are probably in much more important role in culture than they even are today. This dynamic, it's important that we get this historical dynamic because this dynamic is what makes someone like Friedrich Schleiermacher so important in the history of Christianity. Even if Schleiermacher's theology wouldn't fit in too neatly, likely wouldn't fit in too neatly within the doctrinal limits of most evangelical churches today. Today's episode is about the theology of Friedrich Schleiermacher. Boy, that's a fun name to say and type. I don't know about you, I didn't grow up uh, in a denominational context or in my Christian school learning much about Schleiermacher. But Schleiermacher is one of the most important theologians in modern history. And it would be remiss, it would be such a huge, huge misstep if you didn't at least understand some of the basic contributions. Some people might not consider them contributions, but we'll just call them contributions to the history of theology. And understanding Schleiermacher is actually going to be important for you to understand, again, another possible theodicy that suggests that reason has its limits when it comes to trying to figure out the problem of evil. In an era where it was culturally in vogue to denounce religion, Friedrich Schleiermacher saw himself as defending Christian belief from the, quote, culture despisers, end quote, of his day. Schleiermacher's work launched a renewal of cultural interest in Christianity throughout Europe as the Enlightenment shifted into the 19th century. This can't be, this historical importance can't be overstated. Some have even called his work the turning point into the modern world. Schleiermacher lived from 1768 to 1834. He was a theology professor at the University of Berlin in Germany and an ordained minister in the Reformed Church. On top of that, he was a member of the Berlin Academy of Sciences, so that gives him a special place of cultural acceptance in that ivory tower class of elite thinkers within his day. Schleiermacher's defense of Christianity could really be seen as maybe a a redefining of Christianity for his cultural context. He thought elements of Christianity could be acceptable for the intelligent modern person if they were reframed, possibly recontextualized for the day, Maybe even certain ideas or long-held beliefs should just be discarded without needing to throw out the entirety of the Christian tradition and message. So how does Schleiermacher attempt to preserve what he thinks is essential in Christianity and yet redefine it, repurpose it, recontextualize it for his day? Schleiermacher does this by inverting one of the most common ways or processes that theology has been done throughout history. 
typically you might think that many theologians, not all, but this is why Schleiermacher can be particularly groundbreaking. Typically, many theologians might start with the Bible or a list of doctrines as a way to frame human experience. So they're going to start with the scriptures. They're going to start with theology. They're going to start with what's been revealed. They're going to start with a list of doctrines. And then they might set out to frame human experience within that biblical narrative, within the confines of that, those doctrines, within maybe even, you know, what they conclude are the sort of metaphysics of the, of biblic, of the biblical story. Schleiermacher, instead, he does something different. He inverts this. Instead of starting with the biblical ideas, Schleiermacher instead starts with human experience and then examines what doctrines or biblical ideas he thinks fits within the human experience. And I get that most, many of you listening to this are going to have a problem with that methodology. Don't shut him off quite yet. I, I'm, not, I'm not trying to, again, I'm just the tour guide here. I'm not trying to convince you that Schleiermacher is right in all areas. I'm not trying to convince you that he's wrong in all areas. I think in order for us to think well for ourselves, we need to figure out and to learn how other people thought. So don't shut this off quite yet if you're going, dude, I have nothing to learn from this guy. You know, I, I start with the Bible and I make. I bend reality around it. You know, I, first of all, I don't think that's entirely true for anybody. Uh, th that might sound good in the confines of church and might play well to the choir, but I actually don't think that's completely true for anybody. I think in a lot of ways, you know, even if your intentions are to say, man, I, brother, I start with the Bible and I interpret the world just through the pure lens of scripture. I, it just, I, I don't think that's possible. I think Kant even helps us see that, that we maybe have these categories that might even be built into our, our minds, those Tupperware bins, right? That when we, we take in the world, we put them into these different categories. And uh, I would also argue before we even get going, and so you don't get hung up on, on Schleiermacher's process here, we can really evaluate it well. I also think we have to acknowledge it's really clear that we always, we've talked about this quite a bit, there is no cultureless theology. So even when we sit down and I go, boy, I want to be shaped by the scriptures, I'm importing my language, I'm importing my reasoning abilities, I'm importing my experiences as a frame of reference to help me even understand what's going on in the story. We don't know things except in comparison to other things that we know. So even if we were to read a story, an ancient story in the scriptures in 1 Samuel about King David, and we were using our imagination to envision this narrative in the Bible, we're taking pictures that we have learned, maybe the flannel graph stories that we had on Sunday morning, pictures of kings that we've seen in our history textbooks, and we are bringing our experiences to the text. I'm not saying that we should go with Schleiermacher's ideas, and I don't think we run with them and say, hey, you know, this guy's right in all points. 
But I know because it was an issue for me in the past that any time I wanted to start reading about Schleiermacher, studying Schleiermacher, you know, these sort of deep evangelical convictions that I just don't think had the nuance they deserved would crop up in me and they'd go, no, I have nothing to learn from this guy because he thinks human experience is more important than the Bible. And that's like, all right, I, I, if we're honest, we, we, don't, we don't have a human experience-less interpretation of the Bible. So let's, if that's really a hang-up for you, like it had been for me for quite some time, in order for me even to hear what this guy has to say, Allow yourself to at least hear what he has to say and to wrestle with it, all right? So here, here's how Schleiermacher does theology. Schleiermacher thinks that the doctrines that fit within our experience should be man- maintained. And this is where the, his pietist background, so again, he's in Germany, just like Immanuel Kant was, and they both have experienced, and they're living within a cultural context in which this pietistic tradition within the Lutheran Reformed, um, the Lutheran and Reformed theological circles, this pietistic movement is, is, is a big deal. And it is, it is a presenting perhaps a, a different way of encountering the scriptures about even doing epistemology, like how do we know things? So you can refer, I'm not going to unpack that all now, but you can refer to episode 11 in this series or part 11 in this series, where we talked about that pietist background for Immanuel Kant, and it will help you understand the, the pietist tradition a little bit better. But the pietist emphasis on subjective experience that we first discussed with that Immanuel Kant episode, this is where this becomes so important even for Schleiermacher. Schleiermacher was raised within the pietist tradition too. And that pietist tradition emphasized the limits of human reasoning and being able to discern the truth about reality. But this is where Schleiermacher, he kind of puts his, you can see this influence in his thought, but it's clear he's not just running with, you know, your you know your your typical your basic uh pietist theology at this time instead of the typical pietist emphasis on special revelation and the spirits working in the scriptures as the starting point for knowledge schleiermacher believed that the human experience or to be more precise what he called feeling was the foundational knowledge of that noumenal realm that Kant talked about. It's not even just local to Kant. We could even go back to Plato. So for Schleiermacher, it is something at times he called intuition, or, you know, maybe that's been English translations of his German, and there's been some debate. Is that a good good way of translating what Schleiermacher's talking about? It might be the closest thing we have. For Schleiermacher, it's, it's intuition or feeling, which is the foundational knowledge of the noumenal realm. It is the foundational experience that we must have in order to know things about God. And hearing that, you might think of maybe even some denominations, some modern 
Christian traditions, churches that you've been to that you might go, oh, well, you know, maybe they wouldn't say it that exact way, but that's that's kind of what I think this church or this denomination or, you know, this Christian school I was a part of, I think this is what they taught too, that it was feeling. I think about my, my charismatic background and there's such a priority placed on intuiting the spirit. And by that, it's not like a rational deduction of principles. It is listening to what we often hear, the inner witness, that inward witness. Um, what would be some other phrases that were common for me that, as I think about it, uh, I, I would hear in charismatic and Pentecostal circles growing up? You know, it's, um, you know, it's that still small voice. It's a feeling. It's an intuition. Nobody, nobody called it intuition, by the way. And I think even feeling would be something they were uncomfortable with. But when somebody would get up and let's say they, they had, this might be so weird in your church tradition, they say, I, I had a word from the Lord, uh, a prophetic word. What they were talking about was an, an intuitive grasping onto something that they might have said, maybe using more modern terminology, it was like downloaded into them. All right, I'm so familiar with that world. And so when I see this framework in Schleiermacher, I go, ah, I've, I can see what Schleiermacher is getting at. Because in a lot of ways, that is what some Christian traditions would point to. They go, it's, that's the foundation of it all right? Then, you know, they might even think like that's, it's that sort of feeling at some point that the biblical authors had, the inspiration of the spirit, the inner witness, the still small voice, the, although the word from heaven, this is something that goes beyond something that would be like math or science. This is supra rational. It's, it's something different. For Schleiermacher, it is feeling or the, quote, subjectless awareness, end quote, that was the bridge between the phenomenological world and the noumenal world. It's the bridge between the physical domain of science and the spiritual domain of mystical knowledge. And again, just like last episode, everyone, I know, you know, you're listening to this, maybe this series primarily to kind of figure out man, how am I going to deal with evil and suffering and make sense of that and the scriptures and God? I get that. But just like in the many of our episodes where we, we have to really get to know the foundations of what some of these, some of these men have thought in order to better understand their theodicy and to see where the theodicy is coming from. So we're going to get to the theodicy stuff, but this is foundational to, to better understand it to appreciate it, to critique it, to figure out if it's something you're grabbing off of the buffet and going to put on your plate for helping you try to understand, um, you know, how there can be evil and suffering, how God can be good and all powerful and to sort through that. So we got to get this foundational stuff first from, from Schleiermacher to better understand his theodicy. All right, just to review here. It's the feeling, it's the subjectless awareness. That is the bridge between the phenomenological world of science and, 
you know, the, 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 the physics and the world of the noumenal realm, that, that domain, the concentric circle outside of the phenomenological circle, the bridge between that is feeling. It is feeling. It is intuition. This is how you link these two worlds. True religion, then, for Schleiermacher, is the, quote, feeling of absolute dependence, end quote, and awareness of the existence of God. Our awareness of the existence of God for Schleiermacher descends from our experience of feeling absolute dependence. And that's going to be interesting. You're going to see, I do think eventually we're going to get to people like Soren Kierkegaard, for example. And you're going to see some of these ideas in Kierkegaard as well. And you're going to even see some of these ideas, maybe even in your own church traditions, you might go, I, I've never heard anybody talk about Schleiermacher in my church. And it's like, well, there's nothing new under the sun. It's not like Schleiermacher is necessarily saying something brand new, but that might be the, the recontextualizing of it that grabs on to these kind of these tug of war matches, not tug of war, that might be too strong of a phrase. These tensions in the church and in Christian, the th- history of Christian theology, these tensions between, between knowing God through general revelation, knowing God through the mystical experience. This is something in Catholic, Eastern Orthodox traditions and Protestant traditions. So when you hear this stuff, you might go, ah, oh, man, that really helps me understand Maybe some of the ways, we never called it Schleiermacher, but Schleiermacher is is laying out uh, a framework of uh, ontology, epistemology, that helps you make sense of your experiences. And again, this is why part 11 in our series on Kant is so important. You really need to go through that one. If, like... Kant and Schleiermacher, you see reality is split between these two experiences, or you see reality comprising these, uh, being comprised of these two concentric circles. You see understanding the physical world through, let's say, the st- study of biology or geology or physics as an incomplete picture of reality. If you feel like this is one circle, studying biology, geology, physics, it makes you more knowledgeable about the the phenomenological world, the physical world, but yet there is a concentric circle outside of that, you would be able to more readily say, hey, you know what? I've learned this stuff, but it gives me an incomplete picture of reality. And that's really important. This is where it gets into the problem of evil stuff, all right? If that's the case, that might help you find a way to deal with the problems of evil that emerge as you grow in knowledge of these subjects like biology, geology, physics, and that's going to become an ever-increasing problem over the next two to three centuries, all right? I guess we're not three centuries away quite yet, but over the next two centuries, the more people begin to understand or to apply their reason to the study of biology, geology, 
physics, the more there seems to be these problems of evil, these new problems of evil that emerge, it can't understate how, especially as we get into the era of Charles Darwin in the late 19th century, how much the increased knowledge of this scientific physical world via reason also increases the questions people have about the Christian God and the Christian story. While knowledge of the phenomenological world does lead many to a greater appreciation of God and his beauty, let's take someone like Gottfried Leibniz. For Leibniz, the more he studied math, and even for him, the more he thought about the possibility that there could be life of some kind on other planets in the universe and in our galaxy, the more he felt like the that this was the best possible world, that even with the evils that we experience in the here and now, that those evils are just so vastly outweighed by the glory of God and the goodness of the world. Not everyone has that experience as they grow in knowledge of the physical domain of the, of the phenomenological world. We should probably and may very well, but don't hold me to this. I really want to finish this series, but each time I, I get into something, I go, oh man, this probably needs a full episode and I, you know, it could go forever. So don't quote me on this, but we probably should dedicate a full episode to how the advances in geology, which led to the discovery of a very old earth and the existence of things like dinosaurs, again, People didn't know that dinosaurs existed before the 19th century. Did you know that? <laughs> like, yes, there are these legends of dragons and things like that, but it wasn't, it wasn't like in the medieval era, like people were digging up fossils and you could go to a museum and see a T-Rex. This is a new thing and it brings about all sorts of questions. Questions that we, that in a European culture, which was dependent on the reading of scripture in many ways to tell the story of the origins of the earth and all of these other things th that when you delve more deeply into the geology and to the biology and when we get into the later into the 19th century and darwin writes his origin of species it becomes so much harder for many people to do natural theology and conclude that god is all good and all powerful it's not the case for everyone. There were people like natural theologians like William Paley, for example, who he thought that, you know, as he looked at creation, he saw a myriad of happy creatures living in balance together. There were people like Gottfried Leibniz who just thought this is the best of all possible worlds, even acknowledging the things that he saw as, you know, really hurtful and which created suffering. And but then there's others, there's others that they look at these things and they go, whoa, hang on. There is just, there's just too, there's so much more suffering in the world. There's so much more experiences that people would say are experiences of evil, especially natural evil. And, and for people that go, this is just seems insurmountable. Here comes Kant and Schleiermacher, right? And again, Kant and Schleiermacher writing before Darwin, but 
these ideas are important as Darwin spreads. It becomes important in Christian theology. This makes Kant and Schleiermacher's efforts at theodicy so crucial because the reason-only approach might be what leads people to a Nietzsche sort of death of God. The reason-only approach might be what led people to that point in Europe. I'm not saying it's exclusively that. Certainly not. There are so many factors which lead to the sort of death of God movement in Western history. But we have to, we have to see that as people began to delve more deeply into the phenomenological world, the more they learned, many of which, many people, and this is still the case today, there are many, many scientists, as the deeper they get into science and the deeper that they get into biology, it doesn't stir up in them like awe and wonder for God's creation. Many people it does. But for others, I don't know if this is a personality predisposition, predisposition, I don't know what it is, but for many people, it doesn't. And so Kant and Schleiermacher, they come around and they go, well, that's okay. Schleiermacher can point to people and say, that's okay, because this is an incomplete picture of the story. And what you really need to have, these things, these experiences are actually to lead you to a place of absolute dependence. And in your absolute dependence, this is where you experience the knowledge of God. It's in your absolute dependence, which leads you to a feeling which bonds your experience in the phenomenological world with the experience of the noumenal world. According to Schleiermacher, the goal of all human pursuits is God consciousness. This is the thing that all humanity is deeply longing for. The thing that satisfies is what Schleiermacher called God consciousness. But this God consciousness isn't just some sort of disembodied, you know, escape from reality. For Schleiermacher, God consciousness is connected with world consciousness. So as we increase our knowledge of Kant's phenomenological world, there is correlation and connection and the opportunity for an increase in God consciousness. That is, conscious awareness of God in the noumenal realm. Our consciousness, this is how this works. So we kind of have to sort of unpack this, this philosophical framework for um, Schleiermacher. Our consciousness... Schleiermacher thinks our consciousness, sees our consciousness as embodied into our physical bodily experience of the world. For Schleiermacher, these domains of soul and body, mind, body are codependent and they're held together within a single principle or force, a transcendent ground or an ultimate reality that everything was grounded within. Growth in proper world consciousness should lead one to more complete God consciousness through the feeling of absolute dependence. Schleiermacher believed that a state of full God consciousness was symbolic 
of what the original state of perfection in the Garden of Eden meant. That's what that story is really about to Schleiermacher. It's a symbolic state, a state of full God consciousness. He doesn't see this Garden of Eden as, uh, and this original state of God consciousness as original in the sense that humanity was at one point in history morally perfect, but now isn't, right? That might be the more traditional understanding of the Garden of Eden story, that there was a point in which humanity was morally perfect and experienced a moral fall. No, for Schleiermacher, he sees it instead that humanity, when we talk about an original state of perfection, that we're not talking about a point in time, but instead that humanity has an inherent longing in them and a built-in predisposition for God consciousness. It is that longing and the disposition that we have to search and to yearn for greater consciousness of God that that is the original state of perfection. And tapping into that, in a sense, is kind of like returning to Eden. So what does this mean for concepts like evil and sin in Schleiermacher's theology? Evil and sin, then, for him, are those, quote, conditions which bring a persistent and regularly renewed consciousness of life's obstacles, end quote. I'm going to say that again. Evil and sin for Schleiermacher are those, quote, conditions which bring a persistent and regularly renewed consciousness of life's obstacles. In this way, Schleiermacher believed in two kinds of evil. If evil is a constantly renewed consciousness of life's obstacles, of those hindrances that we experience in life, and the goal of life is a state of full consciousness, then what does that mean for the problem of evil in Schleiermacher's theology? So Schleiermacher believes there is two kinds of evil. First, there's natural evils. This is similar to probably most Christian history in that natural evils is the category of evils that doesn't necessarily originate with the conscious choices of human beings to act a particular way in the world, human beings as moral agents. Natural evils are things like hurricanes, natural disasters, but this is what makes Schleiermacher's understanding of natural evils unique. Natural evils, which come from the forces of nature, are evil when they present hindrances to our God consciousness. So how could a hurricane, a tornado, present a hindrance to our God consciousness? This is, this is an important distinction for Schleiermacher. So I'm going to unpack that in a little bit. You need to understand the second category of evil to understand that first category. The second category of evil for Schleiermacher are social evils. Social evils are the evils which are hindrances to our God consciousness that result from human activity. In other words, what is it that keeps you from a state of absolute dependence? What keeps you from a conscious state of absolute dependence on God? 
both so natural evils and social evils are things which act as hindrances to a state of absolute dependence and hindrances to God consciousness, which brings up a good question. Well, what in the world could cause that? Is anything then outside of your control? Are any evils outside of your control? Is evil really then just the way we respond to things in the world? And that, if you're making that connection, you're seeing that connection in Schleiermacher, you're on the right track. Instead of trying to defend God's omnipotence, his omnibenevolence in the face of evil and suffering, like most Christian theodicies, right? That's kind of like the point. The point is to go, no, here's how we can defend that God is all good and all powerful, even when we look at evil and suffering. Instead of doing that, Schleiermacher instead argues that both evil and good are interdependent features, and they're all rooted in God. Evil and good don't exist without each other for Schleiermacher. There's no knowledge of evil without the good, and there's no knowledge of good without evil. This is why on my Theodicy Spectrum chart that I put out for free on my Patreon page, feel free to check that out. I put a a chart together kind of plotting the different people, some of the different people and groups that we've looked at throughout our uh, our series so far and kind of putting them on a, a chart where they would land, you know, who's next to who in terms of the way they explain why there's evil and suffering. This is why on my Theodicy Spectrum chart, you'd actually see that I position Schleiermacher on the hypermonism side of the spectrum, even beyond Luther and Calvin and the Jansenists and their monistic theodicy and put Schleiermacher much closer to the deists. The deists. Oh man, that's such a tough word to say. Not deists. (laughs) Deists. The plural of deist. (laughs) All right, so maybe again, as you're starting to make these connections and you're trying to understand Schleiermacher, you're going, okay, well, if evil then is that which interrupts our state of dependence on God and acts then as a hindrance to our God consciousness, then what makes a thing evil? Is there anything that's evil in and of itself, or is evil always about the way we subjectively respond to the world around us? If you're kind of tracking there, again, you're you're on the right track. So even natural evils, in a sense, are not really evil for Schleiermacher. It is only when humans respond to natural events in a way that tries to thwart God consciousness. It's only when we respond in a way that moves us out of a state of absolute dependence or tries to move someone else around us out of a state of absolute dependence is that those are the only instances in which natural evils are evils. So natural evils are just like nature is just nature. It's not good or bad. But it is how humans respond to nature, use nature, abuse it, interpret it. That is what can make a particular event evil. Without sinful people capitalizing on things like natural disasters, there would be no evil in them for Schleiermacher. Even natural disasters could provide an incentive for humans to use their God-given abilities to make improvements in infrastructure, medicine, etc. So it's about how you respond to a natural disaster that makes it evil or an opportunity for growth in God consciousness in a state of absolute dependence. 
natural evils are evil when we interpret them. And I'm going to steal a quote here from the um, Charlene, Charlene P.E. Burns book we've been using throughout this series. She writes, she puts it like this, natural evils are when we interpret them, quote, through the lens of self-centered concern. To better understand this practically, let's use an illustration that um, Charlene P.E. Burns uses in her book. Let's say um, Hurricane Katrina hits the Gulf. If we interpret that event as being about, say, ourselves and the judgment of God, we create guilt and shame in ourselves and we put guilt and shame on others while another group gets to experience this sort of judgmental self-righteousness, right? So let's say this certainly was the case when Hurricane Katrina hit. People said this was God's judgment. It's God's judgment for what? You, I heard everything from things like it was God's judgment for years of Mardi Gras parties to God's judgment for something having to do with us not protecting Israel or something like that. I, you know, there were all sorts of things that I heard about this being an act of judgment. For in Schleiermacher's theology, to say that is to make Hurricane Katrina evil. We make it evil when we make the event about ourselves, because in that case, when you say it's God's judgment, you're placing guilt and shame on someone who you think should be judged, and in others, they fall into the sin of judgmental self-righteousness by interpreting that natural event within their, their humanistic framework. So, Schleiermacher believes that original sin wasn't even about a fallen state that makes humans guilty as they're born into the world. Not like, you know, maybe more typical Reformed notions in particular about total depravity and the fall. Schleiermacher also didn't believe there was a single event in history in which humans went from sinless to sinful. For Schleiermacher, humans just possess the capacity for both self-centered sinfulness and God-consciousness. Infants become sinners because of our corporate consciousness as a species. And because they're born into a world in which this corporate consciousness is already saturated with sinfulness, they enter into a sinful world. They don't enter into a world in a way that might be akin, again, to Calvinist notions of total depravity or Augustinian notions of total depravity, where it's like a child is born because of some hereditary passed down means of passing down a sinful predisposition. That's not what Schleiermacher thought. Schleiermacher thought infants are born into the world, not like in a state of judgment, but they are born into a sinful world with propensity to sin because of the systems of sinfulness that they are born into. Schleiermacher then defines sin as the experience of alienation from God, that which interferes with God consciousness, that which keeps us from a state of absolute dependence. He also believed that sin was This is where his theodicy becomes perhaps even more controversial and why I put him on my theodicy spectrum chart where I did. Again, you can check that out. Download that for free on my Patreon page. Um, He thought that sin was actually ordained by God 
in the service of redemption. And in this way, he might actually be reflecting some of his reformed roots. And as drastic as that may sound to you, you might go, dude, you're saying God ordained sin for the purpose of redemption? I would turn your attention back to the episodes on Luther and Calvin, and you'll find that Schleiermacher's notion isn't that far away from them in this regard. Schleiermacher writes that God is, quote, the author of sin, of sin, however, only as related to redemption, end quote. Many Christians hear perspectives like what Schleiermacher is laying out, and they have major problems with them. It's understandable. Um, I'm not going to argue for or against your problems with Schleiermacher's perspective, but I do want us to give serious consideration to the questions and critiques that Schleiermacher presents to many of us who would have a problem with this perspective. And these are valid, important questions that he asks, and they're good to wrestle with and to to go before we just dismiss somebody. And this is why this is so important. Before we just dismiss another perspective that we don't like on instant here, on the first time we've heard it, I think it's important so that we can practice the discipline of... um, always being open in our lives to the possibility that there's something new we could learn about God, we actually have to, for a moment, entertain the possibility we, we might not have it all together. And that's okay. That can be troubling. And, and that doesn't mean that we would necessarily, when we open ourselves up and actually genuinely try to hear someone's perspective without um, turning it, you know, just listening to it for the purpose, purposes of an argument against it. When we do that, that doesn't mean that we're going to accept what they have to say. So here, here's what I want you to hear from Schleiermacher, especially for those of us that go, I mean, I got a real problem with this idea that it, it all comes from God ultimately. So here, here's some of his questions, critiques, and then maybe we can have some discussion about it, especially on the Patreon page for, uh, that I'll be posting this on, trying to do some, maybe open up for forum discussion on these posts. But on these podcasts, I should say. So here's some of Schleiermacher's challenging questions. And these are questions that he isn't the only person in the history of theology to have these questions. Again, from Schleiermacher's perspective, here's the big question. If sin doesn't ultimately originate from the will of God, if it doesn't ultimately begin from that point, then what other origin point does it come from? Schleiermacher thought that to say there is a real opposing force against God's will in, in you know, metaphysically, ontologically, that there, there was some real opposing force to God's will, Schleiermacher thought, you know, that's just, that's just the old Gnostic framework. That's just, what's the difference between that and the old Gnostic heresies? And so Schleiermacher sees, he looks at these Gnostic heresies, which go, all right, well, it helps, you know, that was the appeal. We go all the way back, this is why I was encouraging you at the beginning to just go through this whole series, going back to very early on when we talked about um, escaping the Gnostic matrix, I think that's what the, the episode was called. The, the appeal of Gnosticism to so many people was that not 
well, it's some complicated philosophical, metaphysic, ontological framework, and that's just so appealing to people because it was complicated. It wasn't that. It was the way that that metaphysical system allowed there to be an explanation for people's pain and suffering, and that was appealing to them. But Schleiermacher looks at that and he goes, hey, you know what the Gnostic heresies did is they presented these, like, it was too much dualism. Where is this other opposing force? Where is its origin? Is it always been there with God? Has sin and evil been there from the very beginning? And either it, if it has, then it, it starts with God or you have two gods? Do you have rival gods? Do you have a demiurge? Again, he sees that as Gnosticism. And you go, oh, all right. I kind of see your point, right? I agree or disagree with him. You go, okay, I can see your line of reasoning. Our growing understanding of the world should cause us to throw out, this is what um, Schleiermacher, Schleiermacher believed, that our, our growing understanding of the world should actually cause us to throw out certain religious myths that detract from our God consciousness. And in this case, one such myth that Schleiermacher thought this no longer makes sense, it's not reasonable, it's not in line with our experience, and it doesn't help the Christian story at all. Schleiermacher just thought, we, just, we should just throw out the idea of the devil altogether. Quote, the idea of the devil as developed among us is so unstable that we cannot expect anyone to be convinced of its truth, end quote. Hmm, that seems particularly troubling <laughs> for many of us. Maybe some of you are like, hey, I got no problem. Like, I, you know, I, I know that people are coming from all over the place that listen to this podcast. All sorts of church backgrounds, people that are, maybe they don't attend church. Maybe they wouldn't consider themselves religious and they just like learning about theology and philosophy. I recognize that. So maybe some of you guys go, hey, I don't have a problem with that. I'll tell you this, that probably every church I've ever been in, and I've been on staff at multiple churches in multiple denominational contexts over the course of my life, there's not a single church that would go, yeah, you know, we just don't believe the devil's a thing. So I get for some of you, that's going to be pretty revolutionary. What would lead somebody to believe that? I was like, hey, doesn't the Bible teach it? So we just believe it? Ah, this is where we get back to the beginning. Schleiermacher's like, hey, we've got to balance this stuff out with our experiences of the world. We've got to balance it out with our experiences of reason. As we grow in world consciousness and we reach out with our feelings into the noumenal realm, it's like we don't just throw out those, the knowledge we've acquired about the world. We don't become totally superstitious. And for Schleiermacher, this idea of the devil, it doesn't even make sense to him. Why would angelic beings close to God ever willingly turn away? For him, it's like, doesn't make sense. Um, what tempted Satan? Wouldn't there need to be some other pre-existent force of evil to tempt Satan to fall? And then like blaming the fall of humanity on Satan for Schleiermacher, he's like, this has never done any good because we still need an explanation for what caused the permanent and irrevocable fall of Satan. Again, you know, there's no redemption for Satan unless you're maybe origin, right? Which then you go, okay, that kind of maybe makes sense for origin. We talked about that a while back as well, but blaming the fall of humanity on Satan, like what good does that do in solving the problem of evil? Because 
who or what tempted Satan. And then you go, well, let's name something else that tempted him that was like the cause of Satan's fall. And then you can peel that layer of the onion back and you go, well, what is it that caused that idea or that agent or whatever? And on and on you go till you get to some sort of necessary fundamental bedrock layer of existence, which for Schleiermacher, he goes, well, that's God. So all of this, for some reason, has to start with God. Again, Schleiermacher, he's like, uh, I, don't even, I don't even see how this adds any value. This might be something we need to discard as if we want Christianity to be the superlative religious explanation that he thought it was. Schleiermacher, I mean, as a side note, I mean, he believed that there were multiple, many different religious pathways which might lead someone to a place of state of absolute dependence and God consciousness, but he, he had sort of a hierarchy of religions, which is interesting, <laughs> interesting to see, like, he put like animism and certain things like that at the bottom of the hierarchy, but he actually put Christianity at the top. He thought it was the best of the religious explanations. You know, so he's kind of a religious pluralist, but also like sees Christianity as the best and the most supreme explanation. So for Schleiermacher, if that's going to continue to be the case, he's like, hey, we got we to gotta get rid of some of this stuff that doesn't make sense. He's like, this doesn't make sense to me, so let's just get rid of it. You know, and he's like, well, whether or not the devil even exists doesn't seem to make any difference as to whether or not humans are in need of salvation. They're still, in Schleiermacher's framework, they need to be moved to a state of absolute dependence. Um, uh, you know, even in the traditional Christian story, like, hey, their redemption, if they have fallen uh, and they need, this, they need salvation in Christ, it, having the devil in the story doesn't seem to make any difference to him. And again, we can argue with him. But I'm just bringing up, you know, his perspective here. In a theological move that may surprise you, actually, Schleiermacher even argues that the notion of the devil undermines the importance of Christ. Because, he goes, if there was no devil, then there would be no need the eternal Son of God. So is Christ actually dependent on the existence of the devil? This was a challenging question, right? So if there's, you know, let's just take a way that we might commonly think of the story that the some sort of fallen principality and power has tempted humanity, led them astray. Christ comes to redeem us, save us from the power of death and the grave, to set us right, to be our substitution on the cross, you know, all of those things to save us from the power of sin and death, et cetera, et cetera. But for Schleiermacher, he's like, all right, well, if we're really going to think about the necessity of Christ, is the necessity of Christ dependent on the necessity of the devil's existence? And for Schleiermacher, he goes, I have a problem with that. I have a problem with this idea that there wouldn't have been a Christ if there isn't a devil. Hmm. Okay. So at this point, you might be going, okay, Schleiermacher, what, which one is it? Does evil exist because of humanity's selfishness and lack of dependence on God? 
or does evil exist because God sovereignly willed it to be so? Schleiermacher's complicated response to that really good question is, yes, Schleiermacher sees evil as happening as a result of the human will and because of God's will. This is in many ways not that far off from someone like John Piper, for example. The Odyssey for Schleiermacher is really a problem of interpretation. When we stop interpreting the world through a self-centered lens, we stop acting selfishly towards others, we stop harming them and acting as a potential inhibitor to their God consciousness, we, we aren't sinning. But even in those acts of sin, we act selfishly if we harm someone, if we in, try to inhibit someone else's God consciousness, even in that act of sin, and even in the systems of sinful human behavior, systematic sin, boy, Schleiermacher might be in modern history the, the theologian that really gets people thinking about systematic sin. That was a big deal to him. Even in systems of sinful human behavior that influence towards sin, the harm that sin produces can lead to redemption if we instead interpret it through a God-conscious lens of absolute dependence. Whether we agree or disagree with Schleiermacher, his influence on history is undeniable. It was his work that returned the study of theology to a place of prominence alongside philosophy in the ivory tower of class. This is undeniable. His influence in academia, in the academy, in Europe, in Western thought is absolutely undeniable. His theodicy becomes extremely important over the next two centuries as scientific advances seem to bring about more theodicy challenges. With Schleiermacher's framework in place, questions about, say, the long bloody history of evolution and the goodness of God find a different set of answers than what purely rationalistic natural theology struggled to give response to. What do you think about Schleiermacher's theology? There's a few ways you can actually reach out to me. I'd love to hear from you. What do you find yourself in agreement with? What do you disagree with? What brought you some tough questions that you're going to have to keep thinking about and wrestling with for yourself? If you're a member of the Deep Talks Patreon community, you can get involved in the discussion forum on the Patreon page. If you're not, you can reach out to me on Twitter and leave me uh, a message. You can, you can connect with me on there. Tell me what you think, points of agreement, disagreement, all of that stuff, things that made you go, oh man, I've never thought about that before. I'd love to hear all of those things. This episode is brought to you ad-free by the Deep Talks Patreon community. It is the generous support that comes from people like BJ, Carolyn, Eli, Josie, Justin, Luke H, Michael H, Paul S, Paul R, Sarah R, Sean C, Stephen M, Tim K. Those of you in that Theology 201 level of contribution, thank you for your support. But also thank you to all the rest of you at whatever level of contribution you're giving to help me make this uh, podcast go, to help me deliver free theological and philosophical education without ads to people wherever they have. Um, anybody that has an internet connection can get into this stuff. 
So thank you for making that possible. You know, this summer we've been on a drive to 300 patrons. The summer is not over. We'd love to hit that goal so I can keep doing ad-free episodes like this one today um, so I can keep giving away free theological and philosophical education. So I invite you to become a member of the Deep Talks Patreon community. We've got discussion forums, uh, bonus Q&A episodes, charts, blogs, articles, all sorts of bonus things as a special thank you to all the people that are supporting over there. Just got done doing a series called Get to Know Your Neighbors Religions and uh, where we were going through all the world religions and and trying to understand them from the lens of scholars within those traditions so that you could be a more caring, compassionate neighbor, that you could better understand them as you have deep talks with your neighbors about the things that really matter to both of you. So for those that are giving at that seven buck a month or more level, you can check that out. Thank you to all of you for your support. You know, if you're not ready to jump on to the Patreon um, community, You can support simply by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts. That helps push it up on the people's search results list as they're looking for podcasts like this. It helps people know what they're getting into. Is it worth their time and energy? And we got to be honest, this is not like a a simple podcast. (laughs) You just spent over an hour listening to a lecture on Friedrich Schleiermacher and the problem of evil. This might not be for everybody. I'm glad it's for you. I love this stuff and I think it's incredibly helpful in my own life. But you know what? Not everybody will think that's the case, but there are others of you like there that are out there and I'd love to have your help in connecting them to this work and uh, having meaningful discussion with them too as well. So thank you guys all for your support. Again, reach out to me with questions comments, concerns, objections, whatever you want on Twitter or on my Patreon page. Always provide a link in the description of this podcast. And finally, if you just wanted to give a one-time donation, go, hey, thanks for this podcast. I learned a lot in today's episode. You can also find a link to that in the description as well. All right. Well, until next time, friends, we'll talk again soon.